This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Every morning when the sun comes up, Cadillac Mountain is the first place in the U.S. where light hits the land. 20 years ago, when we were first dating, my husband Nate described in detail, climbing to the top of the mountain in the dark, watching the panorama of islands glittering gold. I've wanted to see it ever since. Last May, I finally got the chance. If you've been listening, then you know that season two of Shelter in Place was a pandemic odyssey that took my family and me from our home in Oakland, California, across the country to Massachusetts, and a year later brought us back again. Cadillac Mountain sits in Acadia National Park in Maine. It's about a five-hour drive from where we were living, near my in-laws on the North Shore of Boston. I'd never been to Acadia or even to Maine, and so when we made our trek across the country to seek support from extended family, I secretly hoped that I'd finally get to see this place I'd heard so much about. But for most of the year, Maine was closed to visitors, and our travel was limited to the seven-minute drive to my in-law's house to drop off or pick up the kids each weekday morning and evening. But by late May, we'd gotten our vaccines and things were opening up at last. With only two weeks left in Massachusetts before we'd head back home, we decided to make the drive north to Maine. For three days, we packed in as much hiking and exploring as we could manage. We ate lobster and had a bonfire on the beach. Maine was just as beautiful as I'd imagined, but each night when we checked the weather, the forecast for the next morning was clouds. Our last morning in Maine, the skies were finally clear. We went to bed early, set our alarm clocks for 4 a.m., and decided to finish our trip with that sunrise that I'd been waiting 20 years to see. The next morning, we loaded into the car with Nate's mom and brother, with our thermoses of coffee and sweaters and jackets. While my father-in-law and the kids slept in, we made the 20-minute drive up the mountain. Sunrise was at 4.57 a.m., but when we pulled into the parking lot on the mountaintop at 4.30, hundreds of people had already beat us there. The lot was full, so Nate dropped us off and headed off down the road to find a parking spot. I'd worn every layer I had, but as soon as I stepped outside, I knew I was underprepared. Even though it was mid-May, the wind off the ocean felt like winter, and we still had 30 minutes to go. The mountaintop was a wide, rough rock that sloped upward just enough so that even in a crowd, we were able to find a spot where we weren't blocking anyone's view. While Nate speedwalked the path that snaked through the rocks, I did jumping jacks to try to stay warm. Meanwhile, Nate's brother set up his tripod to catch the first rays of dawn. As the wind whipped my cheeks, I tried to conjure up gratitude. The sky turned from lavender to pink, and I reminded myself that I was finally here, doing this thing that had been on my bucket list for 20 years. When my fingers went numb in my pockets, I tried to remember that this was special, but my chattering teeth were making it tough to relax and enjoy the moment. At last, the sun emerged, glittering on the islands just like Nate had described. After all that waiting, the sun ascended into the sky with astonishing speed. The whole thing was over in a matter of seconds, and it was beautiful. But as the crowds beelined for the parking lot, I found myself thinking, wait, that's it? 
Maybe it was fatigue, or the sun-slanted light, or the fact that I was shivering uncontrollably. But as I stepped back onto that path behind me, my foot caught on something. I tumbled down what should have been an easy two-foot drop. Pain shot through the back of my skull as my vision went dark. I'm okay, I said reflexively. But as I tried to stand, I crumpled back onto the ground. My palm stung from where I'd tried to catch myself, and I felt like I might throw up. Whoa, what just happened there, Nate said. My face was hot, and my vision was swimming. I tried to step on the path, but I tripped, I said from the ground where I was huddled up, my hands clasped on the back of my head. I think I hit my head on the rock. Nate peeled my fingers away from my hair and checked to see if I was bleeding. I wasn't, but when he tried to walk me to the car, I could only make it a few steps before I had to sit down again. Nate's mom and brother had wandered off to take pictures and were nowhere in sight. So Nate left me sitting on the curb of the parking lot with my head between my legs while he ran down the street to get the car. I could feel people moving around me, whispering with puzzled concern. Somehow, I made the drive down the mountain without throwing up. But instead of packing up the car and heading back to Massachusetts like we'd planned, I climbed into bed and slept harder than I had in years. We did eventually make the drive back, but I spent most of that drive with my eyes closed under an eye mask. Thanks to telehealth, I was able to see a doctor quickly. The doctor asked me to stand on one leg and answer a bunch of questions and eventually assured me that I hadn't done permanent damage and I would recover. For the next few days, I followed his advice. I stayed off screens, kept the lights low, and tried to keep my noisy kids quiet. I rested when I got tired, which was often, and several people in my life who'd suffered concussions cautioned me to take it easier than I thought I needed to. It took a few weeks, but eventually I did feel like myself again. The incident was filed away with the other dramatic stories of non-fatal injuries that my kids occasionally begged me to tell them about. If my 99-year-old grandmother is any indication of my genetics, chances are good that my life will be long, even with the occasional hard knocks along the way. I don't feel old at 42, but that fall reminded me that I am getting older. It's been a long time since I felt invincible, the way that I used to in my 20s. Last week, we shared an episode that we aired first in May of 2021 called A Good Age, that episode was the first in a larger project where we took a long, hard look at aging. Today, we're sharing a special two-part episode that is the follow-up to that one. One of the most interesting things we encountered in that episode was Professor David Blanchflower's research on happiness and aging, what he calls the happiness curve. When you chart age and happiness, with age on one axis and happiness on the other, the resulting graph is a U-shaped curve that looks like a cockeyed smile. Happiness is high in childhood, but then it decreases steadily through your 20s and 30s and bottoms out in the late 40s. All downhill once you're over the hill, right? But as it turns out, the opposite is true. Beginning in your 50s, you start to get happier. And it doesn't stop there. Each decade beyond that is happier than the last one, and that trend continues even into your 80s and beyond. The happiness curve isn't just an American thing. It holds up in cultures all over the world, and even in different socioeconomic brackets. 
This fascinated us, that our youth-obsessed society has blinded us to better days ahead. It also felt too good to be true. Maybe because all of us working on that episode were in the midst of those decades of declining happiness. It's hard to imagine that life will get better, even as our bodies get slower and less capable. We wanted to know why people got happier as they got older. We wanted to test the happiness curve in real life with people who are contending with their aging bodies right now. So in this episode, we sat down with the people in our life who were showing us how to live in the decades still ahead of us, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. In each of these decades, you'll hear from the people that we interviewed and from our Kasama Collective graduates who had personal ties to these people. To kick us off, Samantha Skinner took us to Texas. I'm Joe Allen Skinner. I'm 59 years old. That was my dad. He's a lifelong Texan, and he's led a pretty interesting life. When he was in high school, his family moved to Guam because his dad was an air traffic controller. I was running around that island and seeing things and hiking up and down trails and jumping off of waterfalls and swimming out over the reef in the deep ocean. I was doing crazy stuff that not everybody gets to do. That was just a couple of years of my life, but it had such a profound effect to this day. And that's 40 years ago, and I'm still in touch with some of those people. It's truly remarkable. You just realize how wonderful this place can be and how wonderful it is if we just care to open our eyes and see it that way. When my dad was 18, he moved back to Texas and made his way to Austin for school. He eventually started working as a security guard at a local events and concert venue. It was there that he befriended one of the ushers, a Korean girl named Teresa. They were friends for years before they finally got married. And a lot of that time, my mom had a crush on my dad, but was too shy to tell him. When my parents got married, it was a big deal. A mixed race marriage to a free spirited man like my dad wasn't exactly what my mom's parents were hoping for. They came around by the time my parents had me and they love my dad today. But even today, the joining of my parents' very different cultures can be a recipe for tense family dynamics. My sister and I didn't really have Asian or mixed race friends growing up. I learned to recognize early on the looks strangers would give our family when they saw us together. Somehow, my dad managed to take all that scrutiny in stride. If there's something you care about or something really matters to you, it's effortless. You just glide right through it. I have a drive, an ambition. And maybe that's what my mom liked so much about him that he knew who he was and what he wanted, and he didn't mind not fitting the mold. I get away with wearing shorts and t-shirts, which I've loved my whole life, and some tennis shoes. I don't have to wear a coat and tie or anything, thank goodness. Pretty carefree. I still have that childlike exuberance. Don't ever want to give that up. My dad says he still feels young, even though he recently had to have hip replacement surgery. So I know I'm 59. And it's funny, these young kids, they say I'm an old man, but then I encountered nurses at the hospital, and they're like, you're so young. Well, it's all relative. I don't feel that old. I have never felt old. I mean, inside, you feel like a youngster. I still remember being a little boy running around. Age is just a number. I feel young. I have energy that I'll just be doing circles around people. A lot of young guys, they have trouble keeping up. 
I think it's more willpower than anything else. That willpower and ambition is a force I've felt all my life. When I'm working on something I care about, it feels easy to work hard. I see I got some of that from my dad. Something else me and my dad share is that we're both pretty stubborn and strong-willed. We have a really sweet relationship now, but it wasn't always this way. When I was a teenager, we rarely saw eye to eye. And at one point, we got so mad at each other that we didn't speak for an entire year. Our fights weren't about work, but it was often a point of tension. My dad has been at the same job for 30 years, managing a local sandwich shop. He's poured so much of himself into that job. And often during our fights, he would say in exasperation, I'm hustling every day to provide for you. Don't I keep this roof over your head? Those fights are far in the rearview mirror. But when my dad and I sat down for this conversation, for the first time, I saw those old struggles from a new perspective. I can see that his love for work and his love for me weren't two separate things, but just different expressions of who he was. We don't live our lives in neatly divided categories. Whether we're talking about work or family or friendships, we bring all of ourselves to that experience. He's still running his business, managing his employees, taking care of his family, all of the same things he did in his 20s and 30s and 40s. I can really see now how his love for our family has given him energy and purpose. It kept him feeling young. In marriage and work and life, my dad figured out early what worked for him and stuck to it. I didn't appreciate until our conversation just how impressive that was, that he knew himself so well at a young age. Maybe that's because he spent a lot of time with people who were older than him, so getting older never really scared him. I think he embraced it. Well, when I was a little boy, when I was living with my grandparents, I was like the happiest dude in the world. Even when I was a young man, like a teenager, I hung around with older people a lot. I remember early on thinking, oh yeah, I'm a wise man. I even had people tell me that, wise beyond the years. I don't know if they were doing me a favor or not though, because I had to realize I still had a lot of things to learn. I've always had a close relationship with my grandparents, aunts, and uncles on both sides. I love talking with them and hearing their stories. My dad says he thinks it's too bad our culture is so obsessed with youth that we're missing a chance to learn from the people who can teach us the most. What do they say? If you correct a fool, they'll hate you. And if you correct a wise person, they'll thank you. I know young people want to figure it out themselves. And some kids, they're open and willing to listen. But a lot of kids these days, not that easy. And I hear them talking about extending the lifetimes, reducing or arresting the aging process. I'm like, come on, y'all. I don't know if that's a good idea. It's not that scary. My dad's perspective on aging reminded me of something Jonathan Roch writes about in his book, The Happiness Curve. He says that we could learn a lot about how to approach midlife from how we approach the teenage years. He writes, in a world where adolescence is an accepted fact, teens are enfolded in all kinds of institutions and norms that guide them to maturity. We have a narrative for adolescence that the challenges and difficulties of the teenage years are part of a normal transition. Generally, we encourage teens to reach out if they feel confusion or turmoil. And if they do reach out, 
most of us have a good sense not to mock them. In other words, we expect that dip in happiness during our teenage years, so we can take steps to seek support when it does. Thanks to David Blanchflower's research on the happiness curve, we now know there's a dip in midlife too. Jonathan Rauch writes, the happiness dip at midlife is developmentally predictable and can be aggravated by isolation, confusion, and self-defeating thought patterns. Like adolescence, it can lead to crisis, but it is not in and of itself a crisis. In the same way that teenagers will fare better when they're met with compassion and support, people will do better in midlife with that support and understanding too. And maybe this is why my dad hasn't seen aging as a crisis, because he's had people around him to give him that perspective. Well, no one likes to fail. I've had some challenging episodes in my life. I've said goodbye to so many people at this point, and I've found a way to appreciate and celebrate and be grateful. But I've often wondered if I didn't have a family, would I be able to come up with the same drive and determination? If you have loved ones and family, it really does make it easier. When I'm hanging out with family, that's the best. I know my dad loves our family, but hearing him say that hanging out with us is the best thing for him suddenly struck me as kind of incredible because from the very beginning, family has brought struggle. First with the acceptance from my mom's family and later with growing pains with me. Those clashes often felt pretty terrible in the moment but they taught us how to work through conflict, how to love each other even when we didn't understand each other. Through the mixing of cultures, we were also given the ability to understand people who are different from us. We were given a portal to experience different worlds. Those experiences were hard, but they made us closer. Maybe the sense of belonging helps my dad to embrace change instead of fearing it. He says that really the only thing that scares him right now are the things outside of himself. I haven't found too much to be scary though. The way we treat the planet or the way we treat each other in this world, that's a little scary. That's a little unnerving. We gotta rethink the way we treat this planet. There could be much more unity. It would do us well in this world. My dad says that even though he feels young, he knows it won't always be that way, but he's not letting that stop him. I suppose maybe one day I'll slow down. Maybe I'll get tired, but not at 59. I've never given up my childlike exuberance, and I really don't know that I should or need to or have to for that matter. I believe it might be a good idea to hang on to that forever. Somebody sent me something in an email earlier today where they mentioned, oh, you're 60 years old. And I said in response, that number looks very big when you see it written down. This is Michelle O'Brien, and that was my dad. My name is Jim O'Brien. I am 61. Dad was born in Ireland. He moved here for his PhD and was a professor for years before building a career as a financial software developer. I still feel the same way I felt when I got up in the morning in college to go to class. I kind of remember what it was like to be listening to the music, the soundtrack of my teen years. It just sort of puts me in touch with that vibe and kind of reminds me that not only do I sort of feel the same way I did then, 
Maybe I am the same in some strange way. The sounds, the ambiance of the thing transports you in a way I think nothing else can. It's all about the music. I should have known he'd say that. Riding shotgun in dad's car always means taking a spin through the pop charts of the 1970s. Billy Joel, Elton John, the Moody Blues, Three Dog Night. His face lights up as he boogies from the driver's seat to his college favorites. But that's not the only thing that has kept my dad feeling young. When I was a kid, I had a passion for hot air ballooning, of all things. By pure chance, in my early 40s, I happened upon some friends who were into that. I'm so delighted that I did that, because that has added a great deal of color, of warmth, of enjoyment and achievement to the middle third of my life that I've been able to share with family also. In the book Sammy mentioned, The Happiness Curve, Jonathan Rauch writes that while adolescence and midlife are not at all the same biologically, emotionally, or socially, both transitions are commonplace and non-pathological. But one of them has a supportive social environment. Sometimes dad jokes that hot air ballooning is his version of that red sports car. But he's always been most excited when he has a problem to solve or a game to figure out. And ballooning, where pilots have to monitor the wind speed and direction, not to mention the terrain, to navigate their aircraft to a safe landing spot, has given him a series of puzzles and a group of friends all built into one activity. It's funny, there's almost a sense that the word old is a pejorative of some kind. I have looked like an older person since I've been a lot younger. In my mid-40s, I imagine many people thought I was already 60. And so I've sort of appeared frozen in time when I go to get my hair cut. And they ask about those little straggly hairs on the top of my head. What do you want me to do with that? And I kind of say, look, that's not coming back. So I'm accepting. <laughs> it feels pretty much the same as it's always felt. I wake up, I'm kind of delighted that I don't have any of those aches and pains one sometimes hears of 60-year-olds having. When I'm being good, when I'm behaving and on my schedule, I'll go out and walk a 5K before I come in and shower and go to work. When I'm feeling more lazy, I'll <laughs> turn over and dream <laughs> and then do that later on in the day. There are certain things that make me feel older. The recognition that so many of the movers and shakers in the world are so much younger than I am now. The recognition that there are whole aspects of culture that I'm not going to get a chance to get exposed to. Some of them mystify me, but some of them I recognize I would probably like a lot, but there just isn't that time. It's the same as the feeling you get when you walk into a magnificent library and you look around and do the quick calculation and say, how long would it take me to read all this? And you go, Darn it, I've never had enough time. And now there is this realization that time is finite. I have to say I've done the mental calculation a few times that says, let's see, if I treat myself well, and statistics are as they ought to be, I'm in the final third of a typical life. That is sobering. So if there's anything that would make one feel old, it's that sort of proximity to the end of it all. If not for this episode, I probably never would have asked my dad these questions. And I saw a lot of myself in his answers. I've also had that wistful feeling he described of looking around and realizing that I'll never be able to read or experience everything that's out there. It's sobering and disconcerting if you allow it to be. But of course, dwelling on what you can't change has never made anybody happier. And despite the fact that one human life can't encompass all that breadth, there's still an opportunity to relish depth in one crucial area. What makes my dad the happiest? Family. And I say that even in the knowledge that some of those times in the past have not been and in future probably will not be the quietest or least fraught. 
there was a time when I would have said, like the dumb 30-something I was, that it was all about doing the best with your career, doing well professionally, making something of a life outside of just people. You get to a certain point and you realize that the most important thing you can have done for yourself, your partner, the world, is having a healthy, functioning family. I think of myself in many ways as dad more than as anything else. I have four wonderful children and my wife and I often sort of sit around and say, look, if we did nothing else with our lives, wow, look at this. As always, if you listen to the very end of the episode, you'll hear shelter-in-place outtakes. But first, if you've enjoyed listening, the very best way to help us is by sharing this podcast with others and writing us a review on Podchaser, Good Pods, and Apple Podcasts. We want to keep making this work for many years to come, both with the podcast and with our Kasama Collective Training Program, where our trainees get to work on these episodes and get hands-on learning in podcasting. We want to do our part to close the gender inequity gap in podcasting. For those of you who've been on this journey with us for a long time, you know that we are doing this because we love it, but we haven't been able to make a whole lot of money at it yet. That's changing, but we need your help. We're having a lot of exciting conversations with people who can help us fund this work, but so much comes down to downloads. We're setting a goal of reaching 10,000 downloads per month by the end of 2021. And I know that sounds like a lot, but with over 175 episodes in our feed, this actually just means that if we can get 57 new listeners to subscribe and listen to our show, we'll reach that goal. And here's where you can help us. Think about anyone in your life who would enjoy this podcast. Ask them if they'd be willing to take two minutes and listen to our season three trailer. If they like what they hear, ask them if they'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and anywhere else that they listen. They can even subscribe to multiple platforms at once. That action alone of listening to our trailer and subscribing to the show helps us get toward our goal. If you listen to public radio, you can also help us by calling or emailing your local public radio station and asking them to air our show. Whether you've been with us from the very beginning or you're just tuning in, I wanna say thank you to each and every one of you who's joined us on this journey and encouraged us along the way. You are the reason that we're still here. Coming up in the next episode. What makes me feel young? How do you know I feel young? I look old, but I don't feel that way. Tune into part two of this episode to hear the conclusion of this story. Nate Davis was the lead writer for this episode. Alana Herlins was our producer. Michelle O'Brien and Samantha Skinner were our associate producers. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode come from Storyblocks. Nate Davis is our creative director, Sarah Edgel is our design director, and our amazing Season 3 Kasama Collective trainees are Bethany Hawkins, Hannah Fowler, Meridian Waters, Nathan Wizard, Nikki Schaefer, and Zara Krim. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. When did you first start to feel old? Um, when I was three. When I put on, like, a dress, like my ballerina dress, I feel like I'm older.
So, Grace, when did you start to feel old? Well, I think either when I was four or five or six, but now I feel really old, like I've grown a lot. Also, what kind of makes me old is doing a lot of work, like writing stories, because I love writing stories just like my mom. I like being seven. Oh, you think you want to be seven? Yeah. What do you think is so special about seven? So I can climb up walls like my brother and sister. Oh, like when they climb up the door frame? Is that what you mean? Is that what you mean by climbing up walls? Okay. <laughs>